We just sang of spiritual warfare and this beautiful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. For our sermon text tonight, we will look more at spiritual warfare. But before we do so, we're going to look at a passage from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is found on page 1093 in your pew Bibles. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Now let's turn to our sermon text, Revelation chapter 12. In the Pew Bibles, this begins on page 1416. Just to help us get the fuller sense of this, I think we will begin at verse 1 of chapter 12, even though our sermon text is going to focus really at verses 7 and following. So Revelation 12, verses 1 through 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. 
So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And may this light help us to be consistent in our Christian walk before you. May we not be like those who look in a mirror and immediately forget what we look like. Help us to be students of your word who meditate on it day and night and thereby persevere and walk before you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, in the second book, The Two Towers, a character there, Faramir, tells Frodo that war must be while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. And I think that captures well how we might feel about spiritual warfare. We can't be spiritual pacifists. On the other hand, we're not just in love with fancy guns and swords. What we love is that which we defend. The kingdom of Christ and the honor of Christ. War must be while we defend our lives against this destroyer. As long as Satan is lurking on the earth, as long as Christ's second coming is delayed, War must be between the church and, his, and Christ's kingdom and Satan and his kingdom. As it says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So here we have our sermon text, Revelation 12, verses 7 to 12. And it shows us this war that we've been talking about on its grandest stage And what we see here is it's not just individual Christians or churches on earth. We find that this war is at the gates of heaven itself. This universal battle that touches both heaven and earth. And these verses tell us about the part in heaven, the part that we know less about. These verses fall into two basic sections. First of all, the war itself. Then we see the results of that war. And that will be our outline for this evening. We're first going to look at the war that breaks out in heaven in verse 7. And then we're going to look at the results of that war in verses 8 and following. And then after this, we will discuss its application to us as Christians. And just as a brief comment before we look at this passage from Revelation, 
I've met so many Christians that they shy away from the book of Revelation because there's confusing things and 12 stars and moons and things happening. Uh, Christians find Revelation to be confusing and overwhelming, so they give up. And I think we give up too easily because this book is full of encouragement for us as Christians. Uh, We look at the world around us, we see it uh, in decay and struggling and sin. It's increasingly hostile to Christians. And here is a book that is meant to encourage us as we seek to persevere in our faith. All I would tell you is that to study Revelation, it requires work, but it is rewarding work. So let's commit ourselves tonight to invest in better understanding this sermon text. In verse 7, it tells us that Michael and his army of angels are fighting against the devil, the dragon, and his angels. Michael has long been associated as the chief angel that defends God's people. You can find references to this in Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 12. In pretty much any place that Michael is mentioned, he's always the defender of Israel against her enemies. So it's no surprise for Michael to be there. Also not a surprise to find the devil and his fallen angels fighting against the armies of heaven. Now to understand this war as it begins in verse 7, we first have to go back briefly to verses 1 through 6. And as we read them in verse 1, there's this woman uh, who symbolizes Israel, the covenant people of God. She's ready to give birth. What is she giving birth to? Well, the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And the great dragon, he, he wanted to destroy this male heir, uh, devour him when he was born. And you can think about different episodes in Jesus' ministry and when he was a baby escaping uh, Bethlehem so that Herod didn't destroy him and the temptations in the desert and so forth. There were all manner of ways that Satan tried to destroy Jesus was unsuccessful. Then we read in those opening verses that the del- or Christ is taken up to heaven. So Christ, he's completed his work. He's been on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And now the devil comes up to heaven to attack him and to attack the kingdom. So that's the location of the story of this war. It's after Ascension Day. It's after Jesus' uh, victory. So Jesus, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he's seated at God's right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. And so this is what happens after Christ ascends. So that brings us up to our sermon text. So what we see in verse 7 then is the dragon, his first plan of attack is still to destroy the sun. Even though the sun's raised from the dead, uh, perhaps there's still a way to attack the Savior in heaven and destroy him. Well, to do that, he has to go to heaven's gate and attack the Lord's army. If you want to take down the prince of heaven, you have to storm the castle. And that's the great war in heaven. Now, what I really like, actually, about these verses is uh, the beginning of verse 8. It it leaves no suspense to what happens. There's no blow-by-blow account of this battle. You might picture action movies where there's these long, drawn-out battle scenes. It just says, he did not prevail. He was defeated. And I think this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Uh, The picture I get of this is that this wasn't some uh, last-second touchdown pass where uh, the armies of heaven won at the last minute. It's just a decisive victory. It's over. Satan's army came. They did not prevail. 
What's interesting about our verses then is that it's it's as if there's more interest, not in the battle itself, but in the meanings and effects of what it means that the dragon has been defeated. There's no longer any place for this dragon in heaven for him to show his face there. He's thrown down to earth and all his fallen angels with him. And I think that shows us the immediate impact of what it means that Christ is raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. Now that he's taken his place in heaven, there's no place left for the dragon to be there. And to help you understand why Christ's ascension to heaven is so important, uh, I think it's helpful to go back to a couple episodes we know from the Old Testament. In Job chapter 1, Satan, who's an outcast of heaven, he still shows up at the heavenly council and accuses God of favoritism towards Job. And while in heaven, God sets limits on how uh, Satan can attack Job. But he was there. Uh, God allowed Satan to be there. In Zechariah chapter 3, in the passage we just read, it speaks of how Joshua, who was the high priest of Israel at that time, there again, Satan's right by him at his right hand, making accusations against uh, Joshua before the Lord. And as we read, at that time, Joshua's iniquity was removed and he was given new garments. So, what does Revelation 12 tell us? Well, this can't happen anymore with Christ. At God's right hand, heaven is one place of the devil. He is banished forever, permanently. He can't go back. And if, we, if you skip ahead, you look at verse 12, it says there that heaven is called upon to rejoice. All the inhabitants of heaven, angels and saints, and whose soul dwell in the presence of Christ, they are called to rejoice because no longer is their adversary permitted to enter heaven's courts. But you see the flip side in verse 12. Woe for the earth and the sea. The devil has come down in great wrath for his time is short. You see how Revelation chapter 12 really helps us to understand our own day. Christ has ascended. We wait for his return on the clouds. And until then, Satan is permanently banished from heaven and he's in great wrath. He's desperately attacking this earth with everything he has. His time is short. His rage is great. Should we be surprised at all when we see great advances in evil in our world? When these horrible events happen and we see them on the news, Satan's kingdom has such a short time before it's all over. Now, if you want to read more about the battle with the dragon, it goes beyond our verses. You have to continue in verse 13 and following. You have to read Revelation chapter 13. You really have to go on to chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation to finish this battle with the dragon. Perhaps a good homework assignment for someone to read later this week. But for now, I find it interesting that what our sermon text does, it describes this massive battle in heaven, immediately stops talking about it in verse 10, and it's as if a pause button is hidden, and like we're watching a good movie, pause, and now it's going to talk about why this is important to us and what this means to us. And that's what we're going to focus on next, is the results of this war to help us understand and interpret what it means that Satan is banished from heaven and he roams this earth in rage. The loud voice of verse 10 says, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God 
and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So you see there the courts of heaven have been cleansed just as surely as Christ overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. Now Christ has done the same in heaven. The heavenly temple is pure. And the key sign is that what it says in verse 10, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accused them day and night before God. And I think the key insight that we see in verse 10 then is that it turns out Satan was accusing everyone. Not just the occasional Job or Joshua the high priest. Satan is all the time in the heavenly court. He's like a bad neighbor who's always there. He's always playing loud music, having loud parties. The police can't do anything. Legally, you can't evict him. But now he's kicked out and heaven rejoices. The constant whine of Satan's accusations against all of God's people. Saying to God, how could you forgive that person? Look how selfish they are. They're going to sin again. They don't deserve any mercy. Satan had very fair accusations to make against God's people. Against sinful human beings. Verse 10 gets at the insidious nature of what the dragon had been up to. Not these few occasional stops. Day and night, a constant, incessant accusation against believers. You can say, look at their sin and their unrighteousness. Look at the punishment that they deserve. This sinner has earned your wrath. He's violated your laws. And you can see their weightiness. He could, for example, say to Jacob, look at this deceiver. He only cares about himself, and yet you're showing him grace? He could say, look at David. This man, he's a murderer and an adulterer, yet you're showing him mercy? Look at the nation of Israel. They are constantly leaving you in all their sin and idolatry, yet you're slow to anger with them? The accuser had his niche making his accusations against God's people until this, until Christ came. Now, the accuser himself is thrown down. His accusations carry no weight. Imagine a courtroom where uh, this defense attorney or prosecutor thinks he has the perfect case. It's all buttoned up. It's all figured out. But now, the judge can rule all of the evidence of Satan, the prosecutor. It's all out of order. The evidence doesn't count anymore. There's no evidence of the sin left to accuse us anymore. And this is because of the work of Christ. He doesn't have evidence because Christ died for our sins. Our sin has an answer, Christ's righteousness. As it says in verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is what paid for our sins. It's as if this, if you could picture it, uh, Every charge that could be brought against a brother or sister in Christ. All God the Father has to do is look to his right hand and there sits Christ and there's the answer for the sin. Jesus died for those sins. Then also verse 11 continues with this assurance. It says all those, uh, that, they ha- that those who stood accused, they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. That Christ died for them. But then verse 11 continues... I find this an interesting thing that it says that it's also about our testimony, the word of our testimony. 
that they did not love their lives even to the death. So there's two reasons given for their conquest. One, because of Christ's blood, but then also because of our testimony. So what does that mean? That means that as we stand for Christ in this world, as we abide in our faith, no matter what faces us, that is one more way, one more day, one more little battle in which the dragon is conquered. Every time we profess faith in Christ, every time we are pushed and we say no, that is a victory for Christ's kingdom. When you think about it, we're just puny human beings. The dragon is way more powerful than us. He can throw down a third of the stars to the earth, but he can't touch us because God protects us. Even to the point of death, we will die for the sake of Christ, for martyrs who profess Christ's name, and it costs them their lives. These verses point to that final victory. All is secure in Christ. And it's easy for us in this day. We can find stories from church history, like Jim Elliott, who died for his faith. And there's other missionaries, others who are persecuted. There's Christians who have died for their faith. But what we learn about faithful Christians in verse 11 with this war on earth is that Christians still must trust in Christ and what rage he must feel that everyone, not just a martyr, but everyone who testifies to the name of Christ is a defeat for Satan. One of the major themes in the book of Revelation is to see how the great events of heaven how they impact our everyday lives. They call us to faith and perseverance in Christ's return. I think these verses fit with that theme. What's happened on this large scale, a a battle in heaven, a war in heaven, our adversary's downfall, I think it has everything to do with the way we live our lives today. But maybe I could ask you, why does this matter? Why should this be significant, that our accuser accused us day and night? Why does that matter to us? Nobody may be holding a gun to your forehead today saying, what do you believe? That said, that does not mean that there's spiritual warfare that's happening right now for us. And what happened in heaven matters for how we face that battle every day. As Christians, our fight is to resist sin to the point of shedding our blood, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. And that's the battle that continues our resistance against the devil and against sin. So I have this specific application that helps to develop this for us this evening. And I'm going to start with an example. Suppose that you have committed a very bad sin. And I don't think that's hard for any Christian to imagine. You probably can look in your own heart and you know the one or two sins that you most regret. So that your conscience when it's working properly, it convicts you of your awful sin. Rightly, you grieve that sin. You confess it and you seek to turn it, turn from it with all your heart. And this is all part of our sanctification as Christians as we seek to crucify our flesh. We turn from that sin. And yet, I'm using this as an example because sometimes... We are tempted to go beyond the boundary of confessing our sin and repentance. And what I mean by that is sometimes the guilt that we feel from sin lingers far beyond our godly repentance. 
When you should feel pardoned and clean, all you really feel is regret. Regret for these past sins that can be an overwhelming burden for any Christian. It's almost like you can't catch your breath. So if you think about that in your heart, the accusation against you, it's incessant. It's day and night. You feel the weight of that sin. It's like you're wearing a scarlet letter. How could I have sinned like that? The accuser cast down from heaven, yet his accusations end up taking residence in your heart as he accuses you day and night there. The accuser will attack your very person, your value and worth. He will provoke you because of the shame about your sin to discount who you are. And that is the power of shame, telling you that you are worthless, you are a nobody. The accuser's message is that you are so defective that you have no real value on this earth. He will crush you with accusations like this. The accuser will use your shame and your guilt so that you forget or disregard God's word. Satan uses your shame to hide God's truth, that you are his child, that you are so loved by him that he is willing to send his son to die for you. God's word tells us that when we believe in Christ, we are adopted into his family. God's word tells us that we are a new creation in Christ. That is our true identity. But the accuser seeks to use our regret and our shame to dismiss what is true about us. The message of our accuser is that you're really nothing more than worthless pond scum. The message of Christ is that you have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and your testimony that you believe in Christ. And I point this out this evening because I don't think we always do a very good job all the time of being aware of the schemes of our adversary. Too often we're unaware of the accuser. We let his accusations stand. They're no longer allowed in heaven, and yet we let those accusations stand in our hearts. We condemn ourselves and forget to preach the gospel to ourselves. Verse 10 in this passage, it gets at the character of our accuser. Day and night he accuses God. It's a similar move by him on this earth. He is not going to give up. Day and night he will accuse us in our hearts, attack us for sins that we've already confessed, belittle our special place as God's children, dismiss our feeble efforts at good works so that we'll stop doing them altogether. I think sometimes we make ourselves easy marks. And if so, then the ancient serpent's accusations day and night, they will wear you down. Your guilt and your shame that is unaddressed by the gospel can be a powerful foothold for the devil. And speaking as a counselor, I see this issue come up again and again. Christians who should know better let their sins define them rather than let their identity in Christ define them. So let's review. The antidote to all of this is the work of Jesus Christ. Our sin is atoned by Christ as far as the east is from the west, as we read this morning. So far has he removed our sins from us. Because of Christ's work, there's an answer for our sin. It is fully addressed. It is dismissed and it is gone. As Romans 8 verse 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
The message of the gospel is that you are set free from your record of sin. You are counted as righteous in Christ. The accuser's message is that you don't belong and you are not worthy. But Christ tells us you are worthy when you look to me in faith. So whose message should you believe in your heart? The one who is cast down from heaven? Or the one who is seated at God's right hand? The answer is obvious. What has happened in Revelation 12 should be happening in your heart every day. The accuser has been thrown down. His accusations are baseless because of Christ's work. If the accuser is banished from heaven and God rules in heaven, then to the victor goes the spoils. It is God who wins. It is Christ who wins. Don't let the one who lost in heaven win a battle in your heart. Take hold of the good news of Christ and don't let any accusation against you stand in your heart provided that you've repented and you look to Christ in faith. Remind yourself what is true about you and Jesus Christ is true every day because those accusations will keep coming every day about why you are not worthy. Romans 8 verse 33 says, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Well, the accuser will try, but not even his arrows can find the mark against the faithful believer. So again, the message of Revelation 12, it should have major consequences in our lives. Our great adversary has been cast down from heaven. And may God give us the strength by faith to cast down that same accuser in our hearts, that we may enjoy the full joy of victory in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we hear about events in heaven and really many of the events of Revelation, it can be confusing and even overwhelming to think about the great and universal uh, world around us. And yet you are eternal. You know all things. You have ordered all things. You have given us a place, not just on this earth, but as believers in your family and in your kingdom. We ask that you would help us to be faithful believers. Help us to be convicted of sin and repent of our sin. But at that point, help us to live out the gospel and live out what our identity is in Christ. May we see ourselves as new creations in Christ, as those loved and delighted in by you, for our sin stands no more. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.